Welcome to episode 117 of The Real Photo Show. This is the first episode I recorded since the shutdown, and what I'm doing is sending a recorder to my guests so that I get a separate track that doesn't rely on the internet for audio quality. So this episode will sound a little different from what you're used to, but it actually worked out really well. And for those of you who are also podcasting, I highly recommend this method. You just have to work out your recording times maybe a little more in advance and then wait for the recorder to come back before you can work on the episode. So my guest for this episode is Martin Bao. Martin is a photographer, a teacher, and a jazz musician. He has been photographing since 1962, but that is not where this story begins. Martin is 92 years old, and he was already an accomplished saxophone player and a highly skilled printing press operator before he took up the camera. Martin is a storyteller, and you will not hear me very much in this episode because he has a unique way of talking about his life and how he had to live with and overcome the obstacles of neglect, racism, and exploitation for most of his life. It is a story filled with pain and anger, and you will hear some of that lifelong pain when Martin speaks. We also talk about Martin's connection to Fundamental Photographs, the science stock photo agency I worked at for 15 years with Kip Petticolis and Richard Magna. Uh, Martin's sons, Quavin Evans and Bonin Bao, are currently cataloging his work, and you can see the start of that effort on Instagram, linked in the episode notes. But Martin's Instagram is Martin underscore Bao, and the Martin Bao Project is just that, at Martin Bao Project, all one word. I also want to give special thanks to Bonin Ventures and their executive assistant, Vanessa Eakin, for helping me with the logistics of this recording. It really was an honor to talk to Martin, to talk to someone who can give such an extensive historical account of being a black artist in America. We just have a really memorable conversation, uh, one in which uh, mostly I just sat back and listened. All right, everyone. I hope you're hanging in there. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. It's very nice to uh, see you. Yeah, well, this is really a surprise. I mean, <clears throat> I, I had no idea who wants to interview me. Oh, would they well. want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and then well, it, it winds up somebody that I knew 20 years ago. So, yeah, let me, let me introduce that. So I've known your name and some of your photos since 1987, because that's when I started working at Fundamental Photographs with Kip Petticolis and Richard Megna. And I'm sure you were there probably back when George Resch ran the operation. Is that right? Yeah, George was my, well, he was my fountain. It was anything I wanted to know. I just had to go and ask George because he knew the answers to everything. So I never got to meet George. Uh, he had passed by the time I was there. Uh-huh. Uh, but Kip always talked about George. And Where was this at? So this was on Forsyth Street, just where it is right now, 210 Forsyth Street. You were, I think you were in Midtown somewhere? Yeah, I was on 17th Street and I was on uh, Fifth Avenue. So one of the jobs I had was to uh, kind of uh, reorganize and, and uh, take into the new computer system, you know, all the older photographs. So I looked at all the old photographs while I was there. And that's why I kept seeing your name. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now I know where, what's going on. <laughs> that's the connection. The, the other reason why you came up on my radar again is because of the Martin Bow Project, uh-huh. which, which your son... Bonin? Yeah, that's fine. And and Quavin is a, a partner of his? That's his brother. His brother. Oh, okay. They're, they've started this project of, you know, going through your archives and getting your work out there, right? Yeah. Quavin yeah. was the one who, uh, he got interested in photography, and he was a social butterfly on the, on the computer with people. So he started posting some of my pictures. I mean, and I had, my pictures were bothering me because I said, 
I need to throw out all of the the pictures that aren't important and only I just want the art and uh, so my idea of what art was was different than the next person's so my son said oh man you don't know your pictures look at this this picture you don't know how great that I said that's not a picture that was a test <laughs> I was testing an idea uh, and I had to do it to find out how to do it. So yeah. that's one of the that's one of the throwaway pictures. Throwaways, man. Are you <laughs> <laughs> that well? You know what? Everyone needs a good editor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I had taken a film course, and I, you know, they said, "What do you want to do?" I said, oh, "What are you kidding? I want to do the." camera of course you know yeah well you don't get to decide you don't get to edit it confusion i really had a confused idea of what i wanted to do i I thought i wanted to do film but more and more i was beginning to think that uh, i got to rethink this whole thing but uh, I got turned on to it because I had a friend who, he didn't want to be a cameraman. He just saw art a different way than I did. And he used whatever tool was available to do it. And I was beginning to really wake up to what uh, art is and... Do I want to do that, or am I already there? So it was a, a, a beginning, an opening of Martin Bow. Well, are we talking about uh, 1962 when you were about in your early 30s, and that's when you got your first camera? Yeah. And wait, so you were you had been studying film. Were you, where so where did you uh, go to school when you were studying film? Oh, that was. Uh, I studied film. Well, Johnson was the president, and he was building a new society. So anybody who wanted to change the society and make a new world, uh, he had big dreams, but he was a good politician because he could twist people's arms and get things done. And he he had been there so long that he knew everybody and knew Mm -hmm. how to twist their arms. So anyway, this black woman, Peggy Penn, wanted to, she looked and said, there's no, uh, there's no black people in the film industry. And they could get away with it because, well, there's no blacks out there that know anything about film. So we can't put them in the union and they can't do this. So she said, she went to Johnson and said, I need money to start a class of film people We'll teach them because there's no place for them to get the ex- experience. So a film film class, film students who are African-American? Any kind of uh, minority. Oh, okay. The only way that uh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, that's okay. So, yeah, no. Um, you know, we were talking about Johnson, the New Society, getting into film. Uh, so there were more African Americans in the film industry and more people of color in the film industry, right? Right. I I tend to tell the long story. I don't mind. This uh, podcast is, is is all about long stories. <laughs> That's why I get uh, I lose my train of thought because I got so many balls in the air. I'm sure. So so that's so it was film that you started with. You talking about my whole life? Oh, that's another story. Uh, <laughs> nineteen. This was when Johnson was president. It was nineteen. I started the school in nineteen seventy-two. Okay. 
Yeah. And you were already in your 30s at this point when you started your interest in photography. What were you doing before that? What were you doing as a young adult? Oh, man. Again, I had a lot of balls in the air. I was a, a graphic artist as I was, I was in the printing. I ran a printing press. I made plates. I shot the negatives. I stripped negatives. I did the whole printing thing. I have a curiosity that goes beyond all bounds. Was this all in New York? No. I was in Chicago, and I went to get this job. And uh, it's interesting thing. They sent me over to be interviewed for a job. And uh, I followed the address, and I said, Oh, my God, this is Mr. Schaefer's. He was into steel, and he had a mansion on on the lakefront. And my fa- my grandfather was his butler, head butler. So he ran everybody at this mansion. And every Memorial Day, we'd go and watch the parade, and we'd march along with the parade at the tail end and it ended at Lake Michigan so we'd go by and see Grandpa Hmm. and he would take us in to see Mr. Schaefer and uh, I remember this old man sitting there and he would reach in his pocket and pull out uh, brand new one dollar bills and he would give each one of us kids one of one of these dollar bills, and I said, "Oh boy, I see all kind of crazy things I could buy with this dollar bill." And it was really a happy time. As soon as we get out, my mother said, "All right, hand it over." <laughs> I said, "What do you mean? He gave it to us. Hand <laughs> it <right>. over." <laughs> <laughs> so so when I went in to be interviewed the same building you know the same stairs we'd go up and the only thing is Mr. Schaefer wasn't there you know so I told this story to the guy I was so he's shit what I mean you got the job I mean just the story itself, who I was, meant well. This is a this is too good to be true. So I got the job, and I went down. And, okay, this is what you're going to be doing. It was now turned into a school, a school for law enforcement, like a police academy. Yeah. So uh, the first thing is. I hear this machine over here running. So I go and I look at it, and it's spitting out paper, you know, printed paper. Boom, boom. And then he stopped the press because I'd be an assistant to another guy. And uh, he would stop the press, and I looked at it. So when I got a chance, I asked him, I said, I don't understand how is that thing working? There's no raised type. It's just uh, a sheet of thin metal. And uh, explain it. So he explained it to me. He said, the image on the metal plate is grease base. And the ink rollers, which are riding on it, the flat surface is attracted by the image mm-hmm. and it's transferred to another drum and then it's compressed and it's printed on the paper. That seemed to be such a, <laughs> wow, I'd never heard of anything like that. That is so 
neat. <laughs> it reminds me of, in, in some ways, you know, seeing my students' reactions when they get into the dark room for the first time and they see that print come up in the developer. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So then you have this. You have this job in your your twenties. Yeah. What I'm getting at is the curiosity that I have led me to. I want you to teach me to run the press because you have to teach me. I watched everything he did uh, and I'm learning so I can already run the press, but uh, you know, it's an expensive machine and they can't trust me with it until I know what I'm doing. So I went way beyond that. So while he was on vacation, I got a chance to run the press and run some samples to say I did this on the press and you you did that how did how did you do it well this is how I did it you know so when it was my time to go on vacation I went looking for a job running the press and one thing led to another, and I wound up being really well-versed in the whole printing trade. I went to this shop, I went to another shop, and I, I could run the presses, I could strip the, whatever it was that had to be done, I could do it. And I could, I would always be curious, start with curiosity first, and uh, then I would work at it until I knew everything, and then I'm ready to go to something else because my curiosity has been solved. Right. Yeah. yeah. And while I was at the print print shop, there was a guy who worked there. And he was into photography. So he used to tell me about fine-grained developer and all these <laughs> words are going into my head. Right. But I don't know what the f he's talking about. How do you go from Chicago to New York? Or was that the first stop? Uh, well, okay. I was a jazz musician. And the only reason I wound up a jazz musician, I went to a, a friend of mine's house. I said, come on out and uh, let's play baseball. He said, no, I got to practice. Uh. And he was sitting there with a saxophone. And I looked at the saxophone with all of these keys. And it, I had to. I had to get a saxophone. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a funny situation because, so I went home and asked my mother, I said, uh, I want to play the saxophone. And this was, you know, I was born in, in 1927. So I'm a, you know, expensive saxophone. Get out of here, you crazy. I was a depression baby. So my family, that meant my family was de a depression family. Right. And they couldn't provide very much. And there was two kids, I guess, in their mind, said, because of the money situation, I can only give to one. Since I was the second child, I didn't get very much. And I shouldn't expect very much you're the second child you know th that's not the way people think today but uh that's the way it was uh, which didn't make any sense to me the world really has changed mm -hmm. when did you actually start performing music i was doing that in high school wow i remember playing all night going to school in the day and not getting any sleep at all. <laughs> and uh, I did that for two weeks, and I, 
I had to quit because uh, I couldn't do it. it. Just physically couldn't do it. Yeah. Because back then, you could easily get a gig because the war was on and all the musicians were, they were in the service. Right. And bands. So I got gigs planned. But back then, you had to start at 10 o'clock and you wouldn't get off until the sun came up. So it was an all-night affair, and it was really hard. But uh, what it did to your body was was interesting. There was a certain time, a night, where you just couldn't keep your eyes open. You know, you, you'd try to play, and it was hard playing. And then after you get past that point, you wake up. And then you can really do anything, and you just didn't get tired. And then when the sun was up, you were wide awake to go home, which was, I was in, this, the gig was in Chicago, and I had to go all the way to Evanston, which was uh, an hour or more travel time so i mean it was really a hard thing to do you never you never gave up the saxophone i actually think i see it in the back of your room there right you you kept with music there's two of them i play uh-huh. all the yeah. time but so that stayed with you while you were then studying film and then when you sort of switched over to photography right you know it was it was hard to make a living at music but it was my first love, so it was always in my life. And everything else, as long as I keep that going, everything else will follow. Yeah. So, I mean, eventually your your mother gave in to you having a saxophone. Well, no. The short story is my grandmother had one up in the attic. Oh, wow. You know, her husband was the head butler for this millionaire who traveled all over the world, probably bought a saxophone and said, here, take this. I I bought it on my travel, and uh, I'm just clearing the decks. So here, I think he gave it to my grandfather. Wow. And my grandmother, I mean, back in those days, they would store everything in the attic. So she had a saxophone already, but they had already been on the track of not giving anything, especially to a a depression child who's not too bright because he's the second kid, so everything he knows, he knows secondhand. I mean, you know, like what created the... the society and the society created situations for people. Uh, this is the things that made Martin Bow Martin Bow. Mm. So anyway, yeah. I was up in Canada playing music. I was a lot older. Had a girlfriend, and we had a a gig in a club. It was in a small town that only was there because it was a, a logging. Mm-hmm. So that therefore, a town grew up, and it was Latouk, and there was nightclubs. It was a small town. It was a, a like a club where you could have dinner. Uh, you could have drinks. The town wasn't that big, so one place kind of did everything. Mm-hmm. So it was 200 miles north of Montreal. There wasn't a lot of buildup around there. They wanted to have some entertainment, which was a band. And it was made up of me, 
because I was freelancing and freelancing meaning not having the right or having papers where I had a I could work in Canada so since this was so far it was 200 miles north since I there wasn't anything after that they didn't have any musicians but mm. an agent told me he said look go up there there's a gig up there you can play and your girl the dancer can dance and uh, just you know just don't let anybody know about it i said okay got it went up there nailed it we had this gig where we were working regularly and everybody said oh you're from the states yeah where where from you know everybody that you met wanted to know where you were from so it was something that everybody knew or had been curious about oh i like the music and where is he from and the girl where is she from they didn't have any black people in that town so this black girl doing this exotic dance where did she come from she come from uh Bali or did she come from you know the curiosity was beyond so we were the the, the stars and the uh, every night that we performed it was crowded so we were a big success and one night this guy comes in he says wow you guys were really really where, where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from sh Chicago. Oh, yeah. you came all the way from Chicago to play here? You know, he got the whole story out of me. And then he said, uh, oh, do you have working papers? Mm. I said, are you motherfucker, you. You know, I was, I was really angry because he had tricked me into telling him, that you were working. The one thing I was not supposed to say. Right. So he said, uh, oh, you don't have working papers. Okay, you you have to go now, right this minute. I said, that's when I really got angry. I said, man, you came in here and tricked me, and now you're going to kick me out. And you can't kick me out unless you pay my way home because I don't have any money. I haven't been making any money on this gig. They don't mm. pay me any, hardly anything. You know, they're paying me room and board. I get meals and a few bucks. He said, okay, okay, you, you can stay. You can stay at work and, uh, until you have enough money to, to go home. That's okay. But she's got to go now. Do you hear? Now. So then I knew right then what the whole problem was. The other clubs didn't have any, because everybody was following her. So they just oh. wanted to get rid of her. She was she, drawing from the other clubs. Yeah. So... The, the people who were making the money got the one thing that nobody else has. That's the dancer, not the mm. saxophone. I mean, the, the people were standing on tables. and <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I said, oh, shit. So we had been traveling around with a, a, a trombone player and he said well if you're a freelance musician uh, I want you to know my mother I'm her son and I'm a freelance musician so she knows how hard it is and if you're out there you're going to get stranded so just for your knowledge if you ever get stranded 
My mother lives directly across the street. I'll give you the address of the Apollo Theater. And if you knock on her door and say you're a musician, she will open the door to you and you can stay there until you figure out your next move. Oh, wow. She'll give you a meal, a place to... So I told Sheila, the dancer, a girlfriend, look, you're going to have to leave and uh, they're going to pay you a fare. You'll be able to, to leave and go straight there until I get there. The musicians and some friends said, oh, don't worry about it, Martin. We will drive you to New York. So don't worry about staying to make money. This is unbelievable. Were you, were you looking forward to it or were you, were you nervous about it? No, I didn't know how. I, I just said, well... They're going to let me stay and play. And they're going to have to, somebody's going to have to pay me because I don't have money. And it's, they're the ones that want me out of here. So right. therefore, you're going to have to pay my way out. But uh, I'm not going back, all the way back to Chicago. Racist Chicago? Oh, no. I'm out of there and I always wanted to go to New York and she's in New York and that's where I have to go. So Sheila had already left by then? Yeah she left that night they put her out mm. So then did they end up driving you to Harlem? Yes we, we found the Apollo Theater, found the address across the street and we were taken in, just like the trombone player said. So you, um, you're in Harlem now, you're, and you, you're, you're with Sheila again? Yeah. And you're, you're playing music? No. Oh. I mean, this is New York, you know. I mean, uh, every club already has somebody working, and this was at the time when the union was active, Mm. And if you'd had any kind of problem with the law or anything like that, you couldn't get a union card. So I'm in New York. So but needing work, I guess, right? Yeah. So I went, I got a job. I said, I got I to gotta get a job because I got to have some money. And uh, I went to an agency and... Uh, I had sent home for some of my printing samples, and I took these out to an agency and said, I know how to run a 1250 Multilith. <laughs> oh, you do? Yeah, and these are the samples of work that I've done. She looked at it and she said, go home, put on a suit and tie, shave off that beard <laughs> and uh, I'll get you a job. So I had to become a printer again. So that's what I did. Yeah, so that printing experience came in handy. Yes, because otherwise I wouldn't have I have any I wouldn't have anything. Yeah. And then at, at what point do you start getting into photography? Well, you know, when I look back on my life, nothing was accidental. It was all done with a purpose. So somebody up there likes me. <laughs> as, as long as I do right, somebody is going to look out for me. So even when I did right and got shit on for it, I held to that in my life because mm. I know that somebody is going to take care of me in the right sense because of that. 
So that's the way I've lived my life. And because of that, I think things have always gone uh, the best way for me. So while I was doing that job, hating, hating every minute of it. The printing job. I was a printer. Mm -hmm. I could print anything. I could make the plates for anything. Mm. But this was not that kind of a job because I couldn't show I needed a job and I got one right away. So that was the focus. That was what I had to do. But this was white America. The job was, to put it mildly, I hated my bosses. And I hated them because they were white. So in order to in order to do this job, I made sure I was late every morning. <laughs> I'd come in a half hour late because I know it irritated them. I said, what, what are you bitching about? If I come in a half hour late, I stay 45 minutes over. So you're getting more than you bargained for. So th th I actually did this in order to, to be able to work for these, to me, these stupid people <laughs> and uh, not only do the job, but uh, be able to live with myself because I had to make money. And it wasn't a lot of money. And I was, I was really pretty angry at the world because all I'd ever known was racism. So there was uh, somebody who wanted to talk to me. I said, well, you have to go downstairs and talk to the bosses. I'm just uh, press. He said, well, that's what I wanted talk you're the pressman that's why i want to talk to you now look through my eyes here's a smart aleck white guy broad forehead intellectual looking smart ass and i hate him already and uh he says oh whose tenor saxophone is that over there in the corner. And I was playing in a band that night. We had a rehearsal, so I brought the horn to work, and it was sitting over in the corner. And I said, whoa, who is this dude? He recognized right away that uh, this was a saxophone. Most people look at it. They, they all are curious. And they said, well, what do you got in there, a machine gun? He's the only one that knew what it was. So I said, wait a minute. Who is this dude? So uh, I said, well, yeah, it's a saxophone. How did you know? I mean, he said, well, I'm into jazz. I said, oh, well, that means we can have a conversation. So hmm. what are you talking about? He said, you run the press. I want to talk to the press man because I have a project and everybody I talk to, especially the people you're supposed to talk to, I ask them and they kick me out. No, get out of here. No, no. I said, wow, what question are you asking? He said, the question I keep asking is, can you run invisible ink on a multi-lith. <laughs> what, yeah. what an odd question. There's so many questions to follow up with that. Yeah. What, uh, <laughs> how, what, what kind of... I don't know, but tell me more. So he was impressed that I was 
curious. Well, my curiosity was always there. So run Invisible Ink, how in the world do you do that? Tell me more. Why do you want to do that? You know, why this? Why that? So we became fast friends. He was not only impressed with my curiosity and the wanting to figure a way out of solving that problem. So, in other words, I was a problem solver. So, and the thing that was really nice and unique about it was he couldn't talk through the owners because they didn't know anything right. about this. Because all they did was, my job was to print insurance forms. Oh. And they had people out selling, and they needed these forms. So I constantly had to print 5,000 copies of this form. I mean, can you imagine an creative mind who's used to doing creative things on the printing press printing uh, insurance forms no I I was so I was so fucking <laughs> frustrated <laughs> I was frustrated with the racism I was frustrated with uh, not being able to play my music, right. frustrated with getting kicked out of Canada, frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. Did you go to Canada to get out of Chicago? Yeah. Because of the racism? Yeah. Also music opportunities? Music opportunity. I didn't know whether I was going to stay in New York. Because, I mean, there was a lot of things going on. I was a musician, which meant, I mean, I didn't get any support at home with playing the saxophone because the only place you could play the saxophone was in nightclubs, drinking alcohol, smoking pot. You had to live uh, a black life, which was... A black life was a life of turmoil. You were owned by the white establishment one way or another. You were a nobody. You were still a slave. You could only... I lived in a town, Evanston, Illinois. If I wanted a job, I had to wait for the Evanston Review, it was a magazine that was delivered to the house, and uh, you turn to the back and the warn ads, and you were looking for a job, but you'd have to look under the colored section. You couldn't even look for a job, so. You looked in the want ad under colored. Mm. So that tells you right there that everything is segregated. You can't even get a job. And there's only the only jobs under colored is busboy. There was some high class waiter jobs, but those are in high-class hotels where they got black waiters. You know, everything was segregated. And and every job was service. Yeah. I mean, so I'm angry. Every day I come to work for this motherfucker. I mean, I feel like a nobody. And the only way to feel like somebody is to get control of my life which is to come in late right you finally have this sort of almost creative moment where you're being asked about 
printing invisible ink. Yeah, but this guy became my best friend because he op- he opened up the art community to me, and uh, so I did it. Figured you out. Printed it. Yeah. What was it for? There was a psychiatrist, a big name psychiatrist in the educational world, who said the problem with giving tests to young students is they don't get to see what the answer is until a week later. Oh. So if you could have test books where they would have a pen and they could choose which box and if they got an immediate cross in the box they could get immediate feedback as they answered the questions what a genius idea yeah and we finally did it on a on a multilith and uh, so the fact that i helped this guy do this this is uh Phil Niblock. Oh, this is Phil Niblock. Yes. Another name that I knew from my fundamental years. Fundamental yes. Years. Yeah, he, he and George put together fundamental photographs. Oh. So that's how I got to meet George. George Resch, yeah. And become a part of, because uh, fundamental photographs, George was already doing that. Let me just reintroduce Fundamental Photographs again. So Fundamental Photographs is a, a science stock photo agency. And so Phil Niblock and George, uh, George Resch started it with Phil Niblock. And by the time I got there, it had been taken over by Kip Petticolis and Richard Magna. And we were, yeah. you know, we were making photos for textbooks, science yeah. photos. And I had just sold my parents' house. And uh, George said, asked me if I wanted to... Uh, invest in fundamental photographs and help make it go further faster Hmm. so you have a way of making a living and i saw what he was doing so i would have been a part except for the fact that i liked the photography because it was complicated and like Phil said, you'll you'll learn a lot of craft. Well, back then, I remember, even when I started, we had our own darkroom. Yeah. I mean, but I was a jazz musician. I didn't <laughs> like photographs. That The kind of photographs I wanted had a... Well, each one of them had a story to tell, but mm. not a... And, textbook school white (laughs) racism were i mean there's a lot of things going on in my head what what year are we talking about now roughly um what what year did kennedy get killed oh uh 64 let me look that up uh 63 uh let's see 62 i i came from I got booted out of Canada, got the job, and yeah, I I was working for these people, and Kennedy got shot, and I was so blown away, I didn't even go to work. And when I finally got myself together, you know, I sat home and watched TV, and it looked like the whole world was, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking that uh, when I get back to work, they say, well, where were you? So what do you mean, where was I? The president got shot. Yeah, but you were supposed to be here. <sighs> I was I, I was speechless. I really, I said, but the president was killed. Yeah, but you were supposed to be here. Yeah, that was really more than I could. I could. I I I didn't understand that one at all. 
Right. So when when George Rush, when Phil Nemblock introduced you to George Rush and asks you to invest in the in fundamental, this is the very beginning of it. Then yes, it was. But I know you were you were saying how that 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 kind of photography, the the dropping of the balls and the smoke rings and and all those things, that science photography, that wasn't all that interesting to you when when you first no. were introduced to it, right? I mean, you could do it artistically, but. The, the point of it was it was too academic. And then there was also the the school the issue of school segregation. Yeah, the academic was basic racism to me. The world was upside down. And it was about to get much worse. Yeah, so... You ended up joining Fundamental at that point. I didn't want to put my money in it. I wanted to be a photographer, yes. But I wanted to be a photographer the same way I wanted to be a musician, uh, a jazz musician. Right. So I I took some pictures. I went out and shot some pictures of Sonny Rollins. And uh, it was at this club on 7th Avenue, and it only had one light in the ceiling. But I asked him, I knew Sonny Rollins, I said, uh, do you mind if I take pictures of you? He said, yeah, just don't use flash. I said, mm. no, I don't use flash. Don't worry. <laughs> so I took some pictures, and uh, it was the most difficult situation I'd ever had to photograph, because the stage had one light, and it was one light over the center of the stage, and every, every time he looked up and saw he was under that light, he would get out of it. So I said, shit, I can't. I asked him if I could take some pictures, but he made sure that he's not going to be standing still. He can't take any pictures. And uh, so he blocked me. I said, no, you didn't. I am not going to. So I'll just take pictures of motion. Mm. So I picked a slow shutter or either no shutter speed at all. And the shiny horn traced the movements of the light. And I got three pictures that are... I look at them today and I say, wow, those were really great pictures. So I run into this guy. He said, I understand you're a photographer. Well, Back in this day, uh, there weren't too many people who had a 35 millimeter camera. So most of them had formed photography clubs, or and they would come and show their pictures, and it became an art thing. So right. this guy comes to me, he said, uh, oh, each one of us is supposed to bring somebody they know or who they run into who is into photography so we can see their work. Because this was the hippie period, and photography was becoming an art form that uh, a lot of people would form clubs and show their work. And uh, his name was Builder Levy. He heard I was a photographer. Somebody said, he's a photographer, he's good. So he invited me to his club. So at any rate, I went to the club, and each one of them was anxious to get up and show their pictures. And then he said, uh, Builder, you, you brought a friend, and he has pictures? Well... Introduce him. Let's see his. Let's see his work. He, they introduced me to the club. 
okay, let's, let's see your work. So out I trotted these abstract pictures of Sonny Rollins. Well, you're supposed to get up, show your work, and then tell the group why you shot these pictures. I said, well, this was pictures of Sonny Rollins, and uh, in reality, he, he doesn't stand still. So there wasn't a shutter speed where I could actually take a picture of Sonny Rollins. So the situation meant I could trace the light, which is the light was that was making the sound. So I have these pictures of, of sound. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see anything wrong with that concept of what I had photographed. This is a photograph of, of the light, of the sound, of the music. And uh, I said, well, I think Martin Bowers, I think uh, he should go to the art galleries and look at paintings that the masters have photographed because I don't hear any music. And I'm saying to myself, I, I said, I know, this is Sonny Rollins. This is jazz. And you jive, motherfucker. You can't, you can't hear it or see it. But this is how I see it. Right. And already cut me up. And Builder Levy wouldn't speak to me. Well, I said to myself, well, motherfucker, you should have looked at my pictures first. This is how I see it. This is my vision. You don't see it that way? That's fine. Do you remember what what they had or looking at? Was it that, that's, that more uh, social documentary photography? I don't. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But they were they clearly were had their own style of photography that yeah, you did not fit. I, I just learned to operate a camera and well uh, Cartier Bresson, the decisive mm -hmm. moment was the kind of photography I looked at his work and I, I fell in love. I said, Well that's the way that's what you're supposed to do with a camera. When they, when they killed Martin Luther King, they had a rally in Central Park, the Poor People's Rally. And mm. at that rally, Abernathy was speaking, and they had a big flag of the image of Martin Luther King and they were holding that up as a, a rallying uh, visual. And uh, I had one picture that was, it was really a masterpiece. It was a moment, because there's Martin Luther King's image and Abernathy pointing in the distance and people looking Everything in that picture was saying something, and because of the image of Martin Luther King, who is now deceased, I mean, it was a photographic moment. Do you still have that photo? It's one of my best photographs. And a guy told me, he said, I bought a copy of that picture. Uh, I just wanted you to know, not only did I buy it, but it's on my wall along with Cartier-Bresson hmm. and Minor, all the big masters. He said, I just wanted you to know that your picture is in great company. But to me, the thing that is really 
noteworthy to me in the picture itself is Builder Levy, but he's in the picture, so he's not photographing the picture. I, I looked at it and I said, yeah, you're right where you're supposed to be. That's where you, that's where you put yourself. Wrong side of the fence. <laughs> you, you miss the point all the time. So you're right in the middle of it, not realizing that not being in the middle of it gives you the chance to see the picture, like photographing sound or movement is the right perspective to see rather than be. Hmm. I think the important thing out of all of this it's the older I get the more spiritual I get mm-hmm. and you know when you're young you just you look at things uh, differently and as you get older and more spiritual then you want to you want to talk to people especially young people that led you to to teaching at Staten Island, do you think? Yeah, yeah. George got me a job teaching. Oh, so George was the connection between Staten Island and Kip yeah. and Fundamental and, and you. It's and hard to separate. Uh, it's hard to separate George and Phil because mm. I met both of them. So yeah. it was that group of people that, uh, and it was at a time uh, when the arts were changing. Everything was being done totally different. Robert Wilson, Bob Wilson, I did a lot of photography for them. Phil Niblock was one of my best friends. And... Uh, I didn't know anything about art, but the, you know, I, I was pulled into an art group without knowing what art was. Well, I, I didn't go to school. I mean, I went to school, but hated it so much that uh, I dropped out of high school. I don't have any high school diploma. No degrees, no schooling, no, I didn't know anything. My life is built on my experiences. Before we, um, before we wrap up, uh, I, want, I just wanted to mention that, you know, you are on Instagram at Martin Bow, and there's the Martin Bow Project, and, you know, your work is, is getting out there now on social media, and it looks like there's a lot more to come. Are you enjoying that process of seeing all the work edited now and, and printed and, and shown? Yeah, because, uh, <laughs> you know, my mother told me, you're never going to amount to a hill of beans. And uh, that was a saying that people use back then. And then to having that drummed into my ear at, uh, at a time when when I should have been hearing just the opposite is is funny and uh, I, I can't help but uh, get a kick out of that because well, you're never going to be anything you know and, and then wind up uh, everybody is saying very good things, like you're really somebody. Uh, it makes me laugh. But uh, you really have to understand the times that we live in and the kind of influences that uh, 
things that you push against are the things that make you who you are. And uh, so all the things that people said you're not going to be at this point in my life, <laughs> I, I have so happy to have the opportunity to to just explore the possibilities of what my mind can come up with. So well, it's I, it's it's a it's a great mind. You have a great mind, Martin. And boy, I feel like we've we've hit some pretty pretty big topics, and we've talked about a lot of things. Yeah, the amazing thing is, uh, I can't ever find out whether. So my my imagination is the most important. Whatever I imagine is possible and exists. So it's fun. Well, thank you. Okay, Michael. Nice meeting you. You too. Nice meeting you. (laughs) 